0: Welcome to journal spotting. Looking for the right gateway drug to help start up an insatiable medical literature habit? Journal junkies, your ears are in the right place. This is a general medicine podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice-changing articles along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scour the journals so you don't have to. We are the journal spotters.
1: Welcome back to journal spotting! Listeners, let's face it, COVID seems to be changing constantly and keeping up to date with the trials is difficult. We started with treatments which were fairly easy to get to grips with, patients is hypoxic, give oxygen, there's loads of inflammation, oh, give some steroids. These things, you know, we can kind of get our heads around. However, we now have drugs which are as difficult to spell and pronounce as they are to comprehend what the hell they are doing. As our understanding of COVID deepens, the treatment options and potential therapies are becoming increasingly complex. John and I would be happy enough to
0: muddle through these with our little baldy monkey brains,
2: or
0: we could just pull in a fellow baldy expert to take us through it. I am very excited to introduce Dr. James Galloway, Consultant Rheumatologist and Clinical Lecturer at King's College Hospital. Many moons ago, James actually taught me on an MRCP exam course in Manchester, and at the time I was slightly bowled over by his extremely broad knowledge base. That knowledge has only increased, and he now heads up the Biologics Assessment Service at King's. If a consultant at King's has a complex rheumatological, biological, or often just medical question, you might well hear them muttering, hmm,
1: better ask James. Yeah, we're very lucky to have him on the podcast as he's um, published extensively in a variety of topics. And in his latest trial, he is leading TACTIC, which we're going to go through shortly later on in the show. Today, we'll be talking about some of the big COVID trials, which are ongoing or have given us results. And we'll touch base on what is happening with the recovery trial, what the key findings from REMAP-CAP were, what the TACTIC trial is all about, and what lies on the COVID horizon. As always,
0: we like to allow our listeners to get to know our guests a little bit before we dive into the medicine. So, James, could you possibly introduce yourself to our listeners, and I don't know, maybe, maybe tell us a bit about any outdoor pursuits that keep you sane
2: outside of medicine? Well, thank you both very much for uh, for inviting me, and yeah, pleased to meet all your listeners. So, I'm a physician at work, uh, and I would say. From a, an academic perspective, I'm an epidemiologist. I have had a love for a long time of looking at data, doing stats, and on a clinical front, I'm a I'm a rheumatologist. In terms of uh, outside interests, ah, uh, oh, it's been difficult to find them at the moment, is not it? You can't uh, can't leave leave your local area. But I, I've got a long history of enjoying bird watching. I wouldn't claim I'm particularly good at it, but I'm um, enthusiastic. And, and rather disappointingly, I, I since we've had the lockdown our garden has been desperately short of birds, actually, which has been disappointing.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So I remember the first lockdown, there's all this talk about, uh, you know, bird numbers increasing and that sort of thing. But have you found have you found the opposite? Have they actually reduced? Or
2: is that just because uh, of the time of the year? I think we've had competition for the feeders. I think everyone else has been putting bird yeah. feed out. Ah, so we, yeah. we've lost our, our local bird community to our neighbours.
1: <laughs> so on that note, James... Um, I I've recently put up a bird feeder, so I'm contributing to this problem. But my neighbour's bird feeder is getting a lot more attention than mine. So I've got a little photo of mine here. I've attracted I've attracted this little guy. Uh, can we get a, an ID on him? I, I'm I actually am not I'm not a very good bird watcher.
2: So I, I think it's just a tit. Yeah. Typically, that not? It's a blue, it, it, it's a blue mean, tit.
1: Which is very which is very common, presumably. <laughs> but
2: they're, they're friendly creatures. Yeah it sounds like you might need a bit of work on the neighbor's garden i mean the easiest thing is to sabotage the neighbor's feedback feeder i suspect I like
1: that's a good idea really so it's not about improving mine it's about making theirs worse is
2: that add, the add some yeah add some unusual nuts to the neighbor's feeder that, that will put, <laughs> put off the uh
0: or just direct all the squirrels that way that's the way to do it isn't it but you know we had a bird feeder and the squirrels just decimated it within like a day or so so just had this you know get an army of squirrels John it's easy and just send them over
1: nice excellent okay well that's very good advice if if we learn nothing from here on out I have taken a a lot away from this podcast Uh, but I'm sure we are going to learn a lot I think just to bring us back to the topic of the day I think it's best to sort of tackle this topic kind of chronologically if that's okay James um I thought we'd start with the first big breakthrough, which we have covered here on the podcast before, which everyone knows is the recovery trial. And so I thought we could just take things back to that trial and, and just outline what the recovery trial did actually show us.
2: Yes, it, well, it's shown us a lot, and it's a, a, a monstrous trial in terms of size and what they've achieved. That they've So recovery as a concept is very bold to take on a national platform trial. And for listeners... One thing that tickly balls from a trial design perspective is the approach of having a a platform design where you take in tr- treatments and throw out treatments as evidence of also their benefit or, or or lack thereof. So we saw early on in recovery, it had a, a whole host of interventions such as hydroxychloroquine or uh, antiviral therapy with um, with Calitra, and and now we've got an entirely different panel of drugs as uh, as of this week, we've heard we've got barocytinib coming in. We've got Colchine in. We've got aspirin coming in and, and others. So it's, it's been an evolving study. And, and, and probably the biggest headline results to me were robust evidence showing inefficacy of hydroxychloroquine and robust evidence showing a benefit of dexamethasone. And, and that benefit of dexamethasone being particularly in, in people who admitted are hospitalised and have an oxygen requirement or ventilated. And the, the reduction in mortality was consistent, actually, with several other trials that have also been done looking at steroids, but with a much bigger sample size, so really convincing that that, that effect size is true.
0: That's brilliant. Thanks, James. And do you think you could, j- just for our listeners, get an idea of why steroids work? Not, you know, not getting too molecular, but just sort of what is it that steroids work? And is it only dexamethasone or could you use any other steroid?
2: So it's, it's a question that's been asked for a long time about infection. And, and when you develop infection, we know that a lot of the damage the body experiences and suffers from the infection is actually attributable to the host immunological response. And, and in sepsis, it's the sort of inflammatory cascade that starts to overtake itself that causes damage. And there are certain types of infection where we see this inflammation um, disproportionate. COVID, it was apparent early on that, and and this was the the data that came out of China right at the very beginning, was associated with these very striking rises in CRP and the the lung inflammation on imaging that looked like this very inflammatory ground glass opacification, different to typical pneumonia where you get sort of focal consolidation and you get pus accumulating in the lung. This looked like just a very inflammatory infiltrate. Post-mortem sections as well of the early patients showed that there was this very br- brisk inflammatory response in the lung tissue with lots of immune cells in the lung tissue, which was quite distinct to what you typically see from standard bacterial pneumonia. The question then is, Is could you blunt that immunological response So try and stop the body responding to the infection with a, a, an immune immune suppression like steroid? Now, it's worth saying there's some legacy information that predates this. In the original SARS-CoV, the, the SARS outbreak from 2003, observational data suggested steroids were associated with a worse outcome in sepsis trials we've seen that steroids associate with a worse outcome lots of caveats around those trials small size heterogeneous populations and i think one thing about covid about sars-cov-2 is this very homogeneous population of people with this this very sort of single organ centric disease of lung parenchymal inflammation that evolves and and the um, the trials, and it's fair to say it's not just dexamethasone. we've seen trials of methylprednisolone and hydrocortisone as well, um, with similar effect sizes. And so the biological rationale for, for treating COVID as a single organ disease predominantly, and I accept once people get to ICU, they do develop other organ system involvements. But when it initially presents it, it's very sort of single respiratory disease with relatively little cardiovascular instability and um. And, and so the rationale is that you blunt that secondary immunological response to the virus. And if you look, uh, and there's been some great stuff published, actually, um, been and I'm sure lots of people have seen some of the videos published about the cellular response to SARS-CoV-2 when you see the virus invade the cells. And, and you, it's like you're sort of setting off fireworks inside the cell when the virus goes in there in terms of switching on your immunological responses. And, and steroid predictably dampen that.
0: That's really clear, James. Thank you. That's that's a really good explanation of that that process and why it works. So let's uh, let's move on to the next you know the next big study war. It's loads of big studies. Do you think you could talk us through REMAP-CAP and what were they looking at and what were their key findings?
2: Yeah, so re- REMAP-CAP is interesting because it's a it's a legacy study. It is not a COVID study. REMAP-CAP is a multinational study that has been running um, long before COVID started, looking at a series of interventions in people in the critical care setting. It, it's worth just clarifying, that because I think some people read REMAP-CAP and they think, I see you. But it's just a reminder, actually, it's, it's critical care. So that includes people on high dependency settings for non-invasive ventilation or, or high flow oxygen. So not just intubator patients. And REMAP-CAP has delivered several really important results through, through COVID. And I, I think two of the headline results recently have been around um, anticoagulation and then and IL-6 inhibition with tocalizumab, which is, I think the drug you were suggesting is awkward to pronounce and spell. Um, so the, the, very briefly, the anticoagulation, uh, this, the, and, and like so many things trials, it is, so difficult to get your head around the amount of information that comes in i you know go into my office in the morning and i go in sort of seven o'clock in the morning spend the half first half hour just looking at lancet jama new england see what what someone else has published because there's just such a rapid speed RemapCat cap showed this bizarre paradox in people ventilated giving treatment dose anticoagulation looks harmful looks like it doesn't reduce mortality and may increase bleeding risk But in people pre-ICU, people on the ward, so people admitted requiring oxygen, those people, it appears to reduce the chance you're going to ICU. We're yet to see the full paper on that. And I I think uh, we will will scrutinise it. And that information will, I I suspect, translate into changes in practice in the the very short space of time. People often criticise publication by media, by press release, which I, I would also be cautious about it, although... So far in the pandemic, the vast majority of publications by press releases have stood to, stood up scrutiny when the uh, the full papers have followed, and I, I have a lot of faith. I know the REMAP CAP investigators. I have tremendous faith in them as colleagues, and so I, I don't doubt what they're what they've shown.
1: I'm just going to take us on a little tangent here, briefly, just because I think REMAP CAP is also an adaptive trial design. Is that correct?
2: Or yeah, so well, so it's it's platform design um, and. So the, the, the word from a trial perspective, people often hear these words thrown about platform adaptive or Bayesian adaptive design. And, and there's some nuance in terms of what people mean. So when we talk about platform trials, these are trials in which you have a, a trial infrastructure, which is a consent form, a mechanism for randomization for data collection. But the drugs included in the study can change over time so that the trial can can evolve. Now, when we talk about adaptive design, historically, we have always meant adaptive design is a particular type of platform in which you will recruit a series of people to the study, and at pre-specified time points, do an interim analysis to recalculate power and sample size, and then make a decision to stop an arm for futility. And and so adaptive design, and, and that's sort of, of course, Bayesian approach to trials adaptive design is a particular type of platform Um, and I I think so for example in in recovery and remap cap that they're not in the traditional sense a a Bayesian adaptive they are platform trials that that evolve over time I know some people use the terms differently in in different studies
1: that's really helpful so now I I thought we'd move on to talk about tocilizumab which is the drug that remap cap um, has has given us some data on Now, there have been multiple studies that have come out with some conflicting results. Um, Latest is a paper that's come out of Brazil, uh, which I think showed that tocilizumab was actually harmful. We've touched on this in our last um, COVID episode, actually, um, which is going to be released concurrently with this interview. Um, What do you make of the conflicting findings that we've seen in the literature up until now?
2: Yeah, oh, it's really tough. So I've (laughs) been through through the papers really carefully now, and I, I, I think there's some important things to say that when you look at small studies you see variation in numbers due to small study effects that that's really important to acknowledge and I, I think for example the paper in the BMJ out of um, South America that, that was a, a small study however I, I think if I'd been on the data monitoring committee for that study and I'd seen their imbalance in mortality I'd have find it difficult not to have made the same decision they made so they did stop the trial prematurely There are potential explanations though when you look across all the studies for the IL-6 inhibitors about how the trials have designed um, and how they've recruited. And and I think three things in particular are, are probably driving some of the variation we see. One is, the type of patient recruited in terms of the study population. So disease severity at the point of randomization. And I think it is likely that these drugs will have different effects depending when people are randomised. If you have a selection bias for, for picking people perhaps too early in the disease course or too late in the disease course, that may influence it. The second thing is that the concomitant medication is a substantial issue. We don't know for, with much detail how much other immune modulation has been given alongside these drugs and I think that is going to be something that is going to challenge understanding these trials um, and for future trials as well and and recovery will be no exception as their data which will come out from topolizumab in the next fortnight, I expect. Um, Looking at different results is going to be about understanding the population and the concomitant medications. The, The other thing is about the outcome and this is the really challenging bit is about what is your primary outcome and when you assess it. The WHO scale as a primary outcome is probably the the, the outcome I I think that has been valued most. It's not interesting, the outcome in recovery, but the WHO scale gives you a sort of an ordinal scale, which you can rise up or down going from at home discharge and free from symptoms through to in hospital on oxygen in hospital, on a lot of oxygen in hospital, ventilated or, or dead. And, and the, the, um, with some trials have just looked at mortality and they've looked at mortality at different time points 14 or 28 days and and if you take two different hospitals in two different countries and someone goes to ICU with a critical illness there are important differences in both in why that hospital might have chosen to ventilate them at a particular time point and how long they can keep someone alive I, I you know I, I enormous respect for our colleagues in, in intensive critical care so just looking at kings that they have kept people alive through lung disease severity that you could not have imagined with for example availability of ecmo which is not available in all countries so those things are going to influence these and i i think if you say brazil showed tocilizumab doesn't work i don't think i'd say that i'd say brazil showed that in their population with their medical infrastructure, with the type of concomitant medications they are prescribing locally, they haven't seen a benefit of topolizumab. Whereas the remap cap has shown that in a UK healthcare setting, um, in, in the healthcare setting that has to remap cap, with the typical use of concomitant medication that they've described, that population appears to have a, a clear and substantial benefit of the drug.
1: Yeah, it's like we're all being exposed to the kind of complexities of doing critical care or high dependency care research where you get so much heterogeneity between patient groups and it's actually very hard to draw any conclusions sometimes. So tosylizumab, James, what is it and, and why
0: yeah. does it work in COVID?
2: Yeah, so, uh, so it's a monoclonal antibody and it's um, been around for quite a long time, actually. Uh, for those people that always struggle with names, um, you can break, the, this sometimes helps people, actually, you can break the names down a bit about what they mean. So Mab, lastly let us tell you it's a monoclonal antibody. The letters immediately prior to that um, uh, are ZU. ZU tells you that it's a humanized construct. So the monoclonal antibody is being made by producing a human, human antibody using a bacterial system. But it's, it's basically the antibody is 99% made up of proteins you find from humans. And that's different to some other antibodies like infliximab, which sorry, I've got an XI before the MAB which is because it's chimeric, it's made from a murine model. So it's part mouse antibody, part human antibody. Um, so anyway, zu and then the L-I, which are the letters just before the Z-U, they tell you it's a, a monoclonal antibody targeting the immune system. So like infliximab is XI mab it's an immune target. Rituximab, another one people have heard of, uh, Ritux. So that's an X-I because it's chimeric as well. T-U because it was for tumors, it was developed for lymphoma and then the first few letters the drug company choose t-o-c-i in this case so toki lizumab so if people stuck with the naming sometimes talking through the nomenclature can help tocolizumab targets interleukin-6 so interleukin-6 and it it actually it doesn't um, doesn't target the cytokine it targets the receptor Um, that's important because if you were someone who had access to measuring il-6 levels and you give someone a dose of tocilizumab, their serum IL-6 levels will then go very high, because the receptor can't bind the, the protein anymore. So it doesn't clear IL-6; it, it blocks the receptor and stops IL-6 being able to work. In terms of what IL-6 does, so IL-6 is a, a cytokine which is part of your sort of your immune communication network if you imagine the immune system for any part of it to work it has to communicate and so it has a whole run of proteins interferons interleukins these communicate across the immune system interleukin-6 is one of the ones that is really pleiotropic it does lots of different things so if you squirt interleukin-6 into the bone marrow it drives erythropoiesis if you put it into the liver, it does CRP production. It's, so it's a, a generically, uh, it's a fairly generic pro-inflammatory cytokine with lots of effects around the body. And in typical situations, we generally associate it, it's IL-6 with CRP production. And actually, that's interesting because if you give someone an IL-6 blocker, it will make your CRP normalize, even if your disease doesn't get better. So the CRP effect becomes then a fairly pointless biomarker because in someone who's been given tocolizumab or one of the other IL-6 blockers, um, and I've seen people who've come in with meningitis um, whilst on these drugs, and they don't mount a CRP response, it just makes that CRP measurement become an invaluable measurement. Um, Although I have to confess, in COVID, I've seen people with CRP breakthrough despite tocolizumab, which I think reflects the severity of inflammation in the disease. But so IL-6, in terms of When you give tocolizumab and you say, well, how's it working? I think this is one of the questions, because people see these drugs with these long names, they seem novel and they seem frightening. But I've spent years doing pharmacoepidemiology and and studying drug safety. And and one thing that we have seen across the board is that if you were to compare giving someone an IL-6 inhibitor or giving some steroids, generally the the the, the steroids are more dangerous because the the beauty of giving an IL-6 inhibitor is you said, we've got this cytokine, it seems to be driving inflammation. If you block it, you leave the rest of the immune system able to continue to work normally. You leave the rest of the immune system able to balance itself out. Whereas when you give steroids, it's a very blunt tool. It's blocking the entirety of the immune system, but not completely. It sort of dampens everything down a little bit. Whereas giving an IL-6 inhibitor is targeting one particular pathway and switch it off near completely. And And, one, and I think this is a really critical thing to understand Why do steroids work? Well, it's because they are targeting everything. Why might IL-6 work? Well, that would be, the theory would be that we have identified a pathway that is sort of a a central step to the inflammation drive that occurs in COVID. And if we switch that off with a drug that was very targeted, it would be more effective and safer than giving people lots and lots of steroid. Now, I, I think we have seen from the evidence base that we don't think tocalizumab is a panacea. We do not think that IL-6 levels are the only thing that is is abnormal in this disease. I've, if you look at other scenarios, other diseases where IL-6 is very pivotal in driving the disease, like people who get the um, hyperinflammatory syndromes following CAR T therapy, you see IL-6 levels which are normally undetectable in a healthy person going into the tens of thousands. You see enormous amounts of IL-6 produced. Hemophagocytic syndrome in in people with autoimmune diseases, when they get that sort of severe hyperinflammatory state, there again, you see IL-6 levels that go off the scale. In COVID, we see IL-6 levels that are not going to the thousands, but are going to 50 or 100. And so the level of IL-6 elevation is actually quite modest in COVID compared to some of the other diseases for which we use IL-6 blockade. And I think that's reflected in the benefits in the clinical trials. The trials are not universally optimistic. The trials that have worked have not shown it halves your mortality, but it reduces it by maybe 20 or 30%. And and I, I think it's quite clear from my own personal experience. We, we've dosed uh, nearly 70 people um, in Kings over, over across the course of the pandemic with topolism. And it, it is not a panacea in all people. And it certainly brings down the CRP nicely, but... Uh, does it switch off? Do you suddenly find people feel better 24 hours later? They don't. And if you look at the the REMAP-CAP data, and this is quite an important point about when you're using the drug, and if you're seeing people on the wards and they're given it, is to recognise that you don't see a benefit in 24 hours. In fact, the the difference in the survival curves in REMAP-CAP aren't really obvious until you're beyond 10 days down the line. And I think it's just important to remember this is a, a part of the puzzle, and and I think IL-6 inhibition is up there with anticoagulation with steroids with correct oxygen management with all the other things the proning the, the other aspects of managing COVID it is one piece of the, the puzzle rather than the, the sort of the magic bullet which I think some people which you know, even myself would hope that we were going to find a magic bullet for this disease um, but it, sadly it has not uh, not as yet.
0: That's a brilliant overview of that a, a couple of questions about what you said um, one is uh, based on what you said is there any is there any point in monitoring the CRP afterwards if we know that it, it comes down, but it doesn't actually, it's not actually very useful. And yeah. I was wondering as as well as that, could you possibly just um, give us an idea of who you give Tosalizumab to? Do you follow the NHS guidance or do you do, you do it differently at King's?
2: So. If I do the first bit, is there any value in managing, in monitoring CRP? There is, yes. And I think it's because it, it gives you a trend to see where it comes and goes to, because it will start to rise again in secondary bacterial infection as the toclismab comes out of the system. Just on that point, it's always worth remembering, when you use any monoclonal antibody, how long they last, how long they hang around. And it's a slightly odd thing to get your head around, because if you say to someone, oh, well, you know, this person's got kidney failure or liver failure, do you need to dose adjust? Well, the beauty of prescribing antibodies is no. Antibodies are not cleared through renal clearance. They're not cleared by the P450 enzyme pathways. They're metabolized by immune catabolism. At a fairly steady rate, the antibodies are cleared just like any other immunoglobulin in your body. They get cleared over the space of usually about 30 days, um, which is the half-life of IgG. There are some differences with some, some of these though, because clearance of antibodies is substrate dependent. If you have no circulating IL-6 in your body, and you're healthy, and I gave you a dose of toclizumab, the half-life will be between 20 and 30 days. That the same of any other, because toclizumab is an IgG construct. If, however, you had really high levels of IL-6 in your body, the toclizumab will, um, it binds to, well, if the receptor expression is very high, it binds to the receptor, and it'll be, it'll be metabolized quicker so the metabolism is substrate dependent so the more you have of the r6 receptor expression in the body which you get increased in the inflammatory state then the quicker the toclosomal clears and i suspect in people with covid the half-life of the drug is probably closer to 10 days than someone who is healthy and if you look at the pharmacokinetic profiles from healthy volunteer studies they probably underestimate how quickly you clear it in, in someone who's sick and so that means within 10 days you will see CRP responses returning to normal in someone who's been sick you've given a shot of toplismab to if you don't repeat it. And so in terms of then coming to who would I give it to? And and I my conflict is I, I'm on I've been on the NHS commissioning group policy group. And yeah, it's ah oh, it's really tough trying to work this out because what isn't it necessarily in the public domain is how much toplismab there is in the UK at the moment. And how many people we've got in COVID at the moment? Now, thankfully, the numbers of patients in these last few weeks have been um, been dropping. But uh, we are aware that there is a finite amount of tocilizumab in the country. Those supplies will pick up, and you know, as as there's a sort of supply and demand chain. But we need to be cautious. So, the the model that that is currently recommended is to consider its use in people who have definitely got severe COVID pneumonitis. Who have needed to escalate beyond standard flow oxygen rates, so extend to high flow oxygen, so you know, greater than 15 liters, not just 15 liters by rebreathe, but flow rates of, of what you'd use, as, say, an Optiflow device, or people needing NIV, or people needing ventilation, where there has been less than a couple of days between them switching onto that higher level of respiratory support and in whom there's not a clear contraindication to use tocilizumab for example pregnancy which the drug is contraindicated in liver failure because the drug has a small but well described risk in association with severe liver injury um and there's a few other sort of small prints around people on existing immunosuppression and and um so for example people who've got a pre-existing immune compromise in whom the drug might be contraindicated challenge around the timing is always a slightly awkward one because the remap cap criteria said 24 hours. Um, but the reality is if you were enrolled in remap cap, you could have been on CPAP on the ward and it was technically 24 hours from admission to the critical care unit. And what the NHS, sort of the, the, the NHS commissioning had to look at was this challenge of normally at any given day, someone gets to the point that they need to go on to CPAP, they go straight to a critical care unit. But in COVID times, they may have gone to a ward which has been upscaled to provide CPAP support. They may have gone to theatres. How do you define critical care units? And, and actually, you don't penalise someone in one part of the country where there isn't critical care capacity, but they are needing that level of care. And so, um, so I think the, the the guidance have come out with some some nuance around that, uh, just to make it equitable.
1: Super. That's that's really helpful, James. Thank you. Um, I thought we'd move on now to the um... TACTIC trial which is the trial that you're one of the chief investigators for I suppose maybe you could just start by outlining for us what the aims of that trial are and, and
2: what it's investigating yeah so TACTIC is um, it's been a labor of love for all of us involved so it's, a, it's another platform trial it's a phase two platform trial so it is rather than recovery which is looking for very large numbers and as a primary endpoint of death and is collecting relatively little information. TACTIC is a stratified trial, so it is only recruiting people at high risk of disease progression. So we we have a a risk score that we use to estimate someone's likelihood of, of deterioration. They need to meet a certain threshold on that risk score to be enrolled. And then they are randomized to immune modulation, to a number of immune modulation strategies with a much more detailed biomarker collection. So we're collecting a lot of biological sampling at baseline and then over follow-up and the primary endpoint is looking at their progression along the WHO ordinal scale so it's looking at not just simply death but progression to needing ventilatory support or or other organ support. The drugs that we looked at and and, uh, it was incredibly tough making decisions back in March when we started setting up the trial about what drugs you choose and we had long discussions and it wasn't just about what was our favourite drug But it was also what drug could you get? What drug could be scalable? And so we wanted to go with drugs that were drugs with an existing license, with an existing SPC, so a summary of product characteristics, meaning the drug has an existing safety profile. We wanted to pick drugs that were not being studied in other platform trials. So we we went for two arms. We had baricitinib which many people have heard of, uh, that's a JAK inhibitor. Actually, a partner trial done by the NIH called the ACT-2 trial um, has already reported with a positive result. And then uh, ravelizumab. Ravelizumab is a complement inhibitor. And that was a drug we were really keen to study for a number of reasons. Firstly, it's got a very bland safety profile. From a safety profile, it's excellent. And we know that a big part of the disease in COVID is endothelial dysfunction. And ravelizumab blocks complement. It blocks, and and that's one of the pathways, one of the mechanisms by which endothelial damage occurs. And and we know if you look at the damage in COVID, for example, the thrombotic events we see, we think that is being driven by endothelial disturbance.
1: Yes, uh, super. So so we've got um, basitinib, ravelizumab, and then is there, is there another version of the trial with uh, the particle well, as well? <laughs> yeah, yeah, So
2: there is. So you, 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 I, I didn't, didn't have that, but we, we, when we first launched it, we launched it with just those two drugs. We have a sort of a, a sister trial. So there's Tactic for the licensed drugs or repurposed drugs, which is called Tactic R. And there's Tactic E, which is the experimental arm, which mm-hmm. is got an identical design, but with a much smaller sample size. And is looking at, Unlicensed drugs or combinations. So, and the the arms in tactic E are a drug called EDP, which is a um, a Prevotella organism, which has immune modulatory properties, and a drug combination of dapagliflozin, the SGL, SGLT2 inhibitor, with um and uh, as, as a combination strategy. So that, that's the Tactic E components. The
1: sort of headline trial is the um, repurposed sort of anti inflammatory medications you described. And then there's a more experimental version. Yes. So, um,
2: so Tactic R, we've recruited nationally just over 350 patients to uh, as of today. And at 375 patients, we will be able to conduct our first interim. And and that will be is, that is a Bayesian adaptive design, so that interim will tell us whether we either need to stop because we've got enough information, or whether we need to continue and to what size we continue to, and whether one arm should be removed for futility. Yeah, tactically we're only looking, we're looking for a much smaller number, so half that that number.
1: Mm. Fantastic. So not too many more patients to go. <laughs> That's exciting. Fingers
2: crossed. <laughs> it's and bizarre. You you. you- you end up wishing you you, you can't do it right because you end up wishing for more patients because you want to do the study, but yeah. you end up wishing for your patients because you you want the the pandemic to end, and so it's a it's a an odd uh, sort of emotional response.
0: <laughs> I was just fascinated. I'm sure the listeners will be interested. The you know the SGLT two and ambrosentan. What what is the what is the theory behind that
2: in the... endothelial dysfunction again so it's it's been really interesting because I, I i think you and many of the listeners will have seen this story unfold with the sglt um sglt2 inhibitors and cardiac failure we we saw that the first signals appeared that um people with diabetes on the sglt2s started to have better cardiovascular outcomes but disproportionate to the improvement in in glycemic control and and then we saw really interestingly data showing that people without diabetes have better cardiac outcomes with heart failure with with these drugs, and and the the thinking is that this is to do with mod- modulation of endothelial function, and and if you remember what the endothelial does, the, the endothelium is all about is the endothelium your your bloodstream. It, it is the mechanism by which all, all those cytokines and all the cells that do the damage cross from the bloodstream and get to the site of organ, get to the site of organ damage and tissue, and so altering how that endothelium transmits information across back and forth it is predictably crucial to disease pathogenesis in so many different diseases, and so that is the rationale behind using those drugs in um, in COVID as well. Not to do with the fact it's going to modify diabetes glycemic control.
0: Brilliant, thank you. I, I think the SGLT2 but as you say, the story is just fascinating, isn't it? And who knows what else
2: they're so, was so for? I remember 20 odd years ago when we, we saw the launch of this new class of drug in diabetes, these drugs of diones that uh, came out and everyone's was like, this is wonderful. We've got a new drug in, in diabetology, the first sort of new class of drugs in, uh, in decades. And of course, they, you know, the rosoglitazone, pyoglitazone have never really made it. There are lots of issues with the rosoglitazone removal altogether from the market. So I think we've seen then, you know, the incretin modulator, the incretin pathway modulators and the SGLT2 inhibitors coming through with a bit of anticipation of, you know, will they definitely do what they say they're going to do? How well will the outcomes translate into, into better outcomes long-term? And they are really changing the the face of the disease i think both diabetes and and now we're learning about heart failure as well so it's a very exciting class of drugs been exciting to watch
0: absolutely james looking forward looking with what we know and what we um are hoping to find out what do you think what do you predict the treatments of severe covid will be like or look like in months to years to come
2: yeah it's so i, I i'm i'm of the opinion that that treatment of severe COVID is going to be combination strategies. I think it's going to be a combination strategy that will combine the different aspects of what we've learned that doesn't appear to be a magic bullet, that you can give one tablet and switch this off. I think we need to probably also recognize that the treatments will differ depending on where you are in the disease journey. We've had this quite strong evidence base emerge that antiviral therapy has a role early on in the disease course. And and we've got quite clear evidence now suggesting that immune modulation has a role later in the disease course. So I suspect that the, the treatment is probably going to be a combination strategy. I, I'm really interested that we saw culture scene has a benefit from the Canadian data that, that was press released last week. Uh, I'm really interested. I think some of the novel antivirals that have been looked at in pre-hospital setting uh, are exciting, the famostat, and, and the famostat for example. And, and I think what we will probably end up is with a staged disease. People in pre-hospital will get a, probably a combination of a, an antiviral and maybe a, a weak, um, low-risk immune modulator. People who we pick up later who come into hospital who are more severe, it's going to be about the anticoagulation, the oxygen, the fluid maintenance. Possibly an antiviral, and then a, a stronger immune modulator. And people who go to ICU, I, I think then it is going to be much more switching towards supportive care once you've got to that part of the journey. And, and the benefit of antivirals and strong immune modulators appears to disappear once people have been on ICU for several days. So I suspect there's going to be a journey through the disease course that we will have have treatment pathways that'll align to, rather than it's a one size fits all for everyone type model
0: look james i think that's absolutely amazing we've gone through so much and thank you so much for for joining us on our show and talking about all of this it's been a pleasure catching up with you and i think you've made these complex trials and medications much clearer well for us and our audience so thank
2: you thank you very much for the invitation
1: yeah thank you james and maybe we can get you back on when uh tactic is published
2: delighted to or press or (laughs)
1: indeed or indeed press release depending on (laughs) the I think,
0: Jennifer, before we go we always like just to get a few uh, take-home points do you think there are any sort of key take-home points would you like our audience to to remember after they listen to this podcast
2: yeah you know i i, I this is a, a sales pitch for epidemiology because i i would love to give a take-home about managing covid but you all know it better than me probably my biggest take-home would be with keeping up with the literature just don't stop reading. The more you read, the more you find a passion in trying to understand the research, whether it's in COVID or whatever you do, um, the more fun medicine is. And there's never been a time where there's been so much really brilliant research coming through. Um, And it's just a great reminder. If you just read the abstracts, you miss it. Read the papers, because people have done They put so much effort, so many hours into doing these studies, and they have been brilliant studies. So yeah, just try and encourage yourselves to read. If you don't yet subscribe to a journal, Sign up to one of the journals. What is your, you know, Lancet subspecialty journal for whatever your specialty is? But I, I just encourage people to read. Mm.
1: We very much consider this uh, podcast the gateway drug to um, a literature <laughs> habit. So here we go. I think that's very good, uh, very, very good advice.
0: Yeah, I think we're hooked, aren't we? Now, that's
1: it. <laughs> Super. Well, thank you very much, James. And um, yeah, looking forward to catching up again in the future. Yeah.
2: Thank you very much.
0: You have been listening to Journal Spotting with your hosts, Dr. Barnaby Hirons and Dr. Jonathan Hudson. Information on today's show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com, on Twitter, at journalspotting, Facebook, or Instagram. Special thanks goes to our logo lady, Natalia, graphics man, Costa, and promotion stars, Isabel and Abby. If you've liked today's podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple. If you have any feedback or questions, get in touch via our webpage, our email, journalspotting at gmail.com, or tweet us. Disclaimer time. This podcast is of educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, the experience of our guests and the evidence we read. We are not affiliated to any particular institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or yourselves.